0: I have so enjoyed our time together in our study of the book of Hebrews, and I'm excited to continue working through our text before us today. Thus far, we have been so clearly shown that the Lord we serve, Jesus Christ, is better. And we will see more of that in our text today as we examine Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 12 the holy spirit through his word has so carefully and systematically walked us through point by point of how jesus christ is superior to everything that these jews had known and studied to use a little bit of a different method uh, to review what we've covered than what we've done before Up to this point in this book, I want you to use your imaginations a little bit with me. As we have previously discussed, one of the likely sources for the book of Hebrews was a sermon preached by the Apostle Paul and recorded by Luke. As we work with our imagination, let's just assume that going forward. Picture with me, if you will, Paul and uh, let's say Timothy, sitting together as Paul prepares what he wants to preach to the Jews as he preaches in the synagogue. As they sit together, I just picture in my head them kind of going back and forth and declaring the greatness of God as they compare and contrast Jesus Christ to the things that they know so well from the Old Testament Scriptures. So just picture this with me, if you will. Paul and Timothy sitting together, going back and forth as they prepare for a sermon. So Timothy maybe started with, Jesus is better than the angels. So that's what we covered there at the beginning of the book. And then they discuss that for a while and go back and forth. And then Paul says, Jesus is better than Moses. And they go back and forth on that one. Timothy responds, Jesus is better than Aaron. Paul, Jesus is better than Abraham. Timothy, wanting to impress his mentor, pulls out the uh, obscure one and says, Jesus is a better priest in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Paul's probably not all that impressed, but Timothy's proud of himself. Paul continues on agreeing that Jesus is a better high priest. Timothy uh, continues on that theme and says, Jesus is the one who brings us a better new covenant, as we have covered And then Paul says, Jesus is better than goats and bulls. And Timothy says, what? (laughs) Uh, Are we really going to go from Moses to Aaron to Abraham to Melchizedek to high priest to covenant to goats and bulls? What are you doing, Paul? And Paul says, oh, my son, let me explain. And that's what we're going to do here in that passage today. We're going to see how... The blood of Jesus is better than the blood of goats and bulls. And why, though it may seem simple, this is such an important truth for our lives today. This has been a purely fictional and silly thing for us to imagine. But I don't think that it's too far-fetched to picture Paul and Timothy or any other early Christians in the church going back and forth with each other and doing what David describes in Psalm 145. And that's my prayer for us today. As we look at this text, we will do what's described here in Psalm 145. Let us extol our God and King, and bless His name forever and ever. Every day we will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, we will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and we will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. We've been doing some of that already together this morning as we've worshipped, and I pray that we will continue to do that as we dive into the Word and see what Christ has done for us on our behalf through the shedding of His blood. If you haven't already, please turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 22. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, and I strongly encourage you to get your Bible out and have the Word open in front of you as we walk through this together. If you need a Bible, we have some for you on the back table. I will read our passage for us, and if you're new here, at the end I will say, this is the Word of the Lord, and you will respond with, thanks be to God. If you are able, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11-22. to sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. All right, please be seated. Our outline today is going to be fairly straightforward. We will have two major points, and then we will look at how these points should shape our daily lives. Our first point is our eternal redemption, and we're going to look at that in verses 11 through 15. And then our second point is going to be the price of our redemption looking at verses 16 through 22. Now let's walk through this passage together, verse by verse, starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. What does it mean when it says that Christ appeared? I don't think this is just simply referring to only the incarnation, but the whole period from Christ's virgin birth through his earthly ministry, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. The good things that have come are all that has been brought about through Christ's perfect life and sacrificial death as he physically entered into our world to carry forward God's sovereign plan for the redemption of his people. We have spoken in the past weeks about the greater and more perfect tent. Recall that we have been looking at the types and shadows from the Old Testament sacrificial system that point us towards Christ. So, what is this saying to us that he's in a new and perfect, and greater and more perfect tent? tent. It's saying that Christ did not serve as the Jewish high priests had in the tabernacle or temple, but in a more perfect tent. Commentators can kind of go two different ways with this, and I think they're both beneficial to look at, so I just want to look at both of them. This more perfect tent can be seen as Christ's own body. As he himself alludes to in John 2.19 when he says, Destroy this temple, referring to himself, and in three days I will raise it up. In this he is referring to his body as the temple. Since Christ has come, we no longer must go through a special building to approach God. Not through a building, but through our Savior. We also know, on the other hand, that right now Jesus is not serving as our perfect or better high priest in any temple. But as it tells us in Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Praise God that we have a high priest who right now, at this very moment, is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. How much of a better tent, a better place is it at the right hand of the Father than in the type of the tabernacle? Slow down and think about that truth for a second. As we are gathered here together this morning, as we are praying to our Father in heaven, Christ is sitting there right next to him, interceding for us. Such a marvelous truth. Picking up again in verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is again taking us back to the day of atonement, when the high priests would enter the Holy of Holies to make offerings for the sins of the peoples. Turn with me, if you will, to Leviticus chapter 16. Let's look at verses 11 through 16, where it talks about what these priests had to do. Leviticus 16, verses 11 Through 16. Aaron shall present the bowl as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bowl as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of the coals of the fire from the altar before the Lord, and the two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord. That the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bowl and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells within them in the midst of their uncleannesses. We see here that there was a process put in place for the priest to purify himself. It was an unclean priest representing an unclean people and in order for him to enter the presence of a perfectly holy God, he had to make a sacrifice of a bull first for himself and then a goat for the people. By contrast, Jesus did not need to make any sacrifices for himself because he himself was holy. He did not need to purify himself or be pardoned from any sin because he is perfectly righteous. He did not have to make the sacrifice for himself, but he did have to make a sacrifice to enter the holy place because he was entering as a representative of unclean people, you and me. He had to sacrifice himself, not because he was defiled in any way, but so that he could bring us out of slavery to sin, so that he could redeem us and bring us into the presence of the Holy God. He had to use his own pure blood to secure our eternal redemption. Let's focus on that amazing little phrase at the end of verse 12, securing an eternal redemption. Redemption Through his blood, Christ redeemed us from slavery to sin and death and purchased our freedom and life. Not just our earthly life, but our eternal life. Once you are freed from slavery to sin by Christ's blood, you are eternally secure in that salvation. And that is because... The basis of your salvation is not in earthly things like bulls and goats, but it is in the precious blood of Christ himself. So that is why it is secured for us. It's not based on us. It's not based on anything of this earth. It's based only on Christ and his blood. Now let's look to verses 13 and 14 to see how the author walks us through how Christ's blood is better. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This may seem like a no-brainer to us that the blood of Christ is far superior to the blood of goats and bulls. But as Zach talked about so well last week, we need to examine how this sermon or how this text would have sounded to the Jewish people and how they would have looked at the blood of the sacrifices offered on the Day of Atonement. John Owen, in his commentary on Hebrews, explains it like this. Amongst them, that being the Jews, The service of the high priest in the most holy place on the day of expiation, he uses that term instead of the day of atonement, on the day of expiation was principally designed, for this was looked on and trusted unto by the Hebrews as the principal glory of their worship and as of the greatest efficacy as unto atonement and reconciliation with God. And so it was in its proper place. Hence, they have a saying yet common amongst them, that on the day of expiation, when the high priest entered into the most holy place, all Israel were made as innocent as in the day of creation. You can hear in that how much these people valued the sacrifices, how much it meant to them these sacrifices made. To us, it sounds so funny saying Jesus is better than goats. And bulls. But to them, this was not any laughing matter. Thus, animal sacrifices were no small thing. But even given that, we see the apostle again argue from the lesser to the greater, as he has been throughout this book. If the Jewish people put so much weight, as they should have, on the Day of Atonement and the sacrifices of animals, how much more must we cherish? the spilling of Christ's blood for us on the cross. We are indeed perfectly purified by the blood of our Savior. We are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. As it says here in the end of the verse, uh, we are purified from our dead works, our sin, to fully and freely serve the living God. It's not a transfer from dead works to no works, but a transfer from brutal slavery under sin and Satan into the service of the most kind and loving boss you can imagine, our living God. Carrying on with verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Here we see the glory of living under the new covenant. Last week, Zach walked us through the limitations of the Old Covenant, so I'm not going to go back through those. I encourage you to listen to it if you didn't hear that. But just pause to take a moment and consider how blessed we are to be living under the New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, we are condemned by our own sin and excluded from the promised blessings and given the curses of not abiding by the law. But since Christ died for us, we are redeemed. We are freed from our slavery to sin and adopted into the family of God as joint heirs with Christ so that we can now receive the promised inheritance. Every time I think of this concept of our transfer from slavery To being a son, I'm drawn back to Galatians 4. These are some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Galatians 4, starting in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We see here this great transfer from our slavery to sin to our sonship in Christ. I think in some ways, because of our history, especially in this country with slavery, We have a little bit of a distorted picture of slavery. Um, Rightly so, because of how the slaves were treated in this country, we see slaves as victims, something who has been done wrong to them in their slavery. But the picture here is not that. We are slaves because of what we have done. We are slaves because of our sin. Not only are we slaves to sin, we are also enemies to God. And while we are slaves to sin and His enemies it is then that he sends Christ to die for us and redeem us out of that slavery that we have earned for ourselves to himself as a son. Truly, the apostle has shown us here that we have a secure and eternal redemption. Now let's move on to our second point, the price of our redemption. Verses 16 and 17. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. As I studied through this passage, I was a little shocked to learn how much debate there actually is over that translation of the word will. Um, Probably read more on that than anything else. Hundreds of pages, lots of ink spilled. We're not going to get into the details of that translation. I think the main point that the apostle is trying to make for us is clear in our understanding of what a will is. His main point here is that Christ had to die. There was no other way for us to become partakers of the inheritance that was promised to us In the Old Covenant, because we failed the regulations of the Old Covenant, the only way for us to be brought back into that inheritance was through the death of Christ. Coming out of verse 15, we've been talking about this eternal inheritance. So the main takeaway from these two verses is that someone had to die and that someone was Christ the Son of God. Christ, being God, is the one who made us the promise of an eternal inheritance. And he is the one who had to die so that we might become partakers of that inheritance. Now let's shift look again at this concept of the spilling of blood. Verses 18 to 20. Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. This comes from Exodus chapter 24, when Moses confirmed the covenant between God and his people by sprinkling the blood from the offerings. Why, why is this strange Old Testament story? It's all seemed a little strange. You get a whole big crowd of people. If I came up here and started stri- sprinkling blood on you, I'd think you'd think something was pretty off. Why is this strange Old Testament story picked up on here by the apostle? Also, why did Moses sprinkle the book of the law and the people with blood? If you recall specifically in Exodus 24, it doesn't actually call out that he sprinkled the book. It says he sprinkled the people. The book was there, and he read for it. So that detail is added or emphasized here by the apostle. Why? Why does he emphasize the sprinkling of the book of the law? Like I said, sprinkling. If I was sprinkling blood on you, it would be a strange thing, but. I think to all of us here who love books so much, sprinkling b- blood on our books is also something. I think if you went into Ryan's library and you started splashing blood around on his books, he'd probably have some serious questions for you. So, why this sprinkling of the blood on the book? Let's leave that question hanging for a minute and carry on with verse 21. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. We saw our first example in Exodus chapter 24, and I think most of us can recall that story. Do any of you recall Moses sprinkling blood on the tent and all the vessels used in worship? It's not anywhere in our Old Testament. It's, again, included here by the apostle. It's, a, it's alluded to um, by Josephus, but it's not in the Old Testament. And it's also with regard to the temple. Um, when Solomon's making his sacrifices, it's talked about a little bit there with the temple, but never with Moses specifically. So what, what is going on here? Why is the apostle including this, and is he making stuff up? Most commentators that I've looked at, and I would tend to agree with them, explain that this is not specifically trying to point to one historic event where Moses did this, but it's referring to what took place in this sacrificial system during these times. Everything had to be purified by blood. In other words, in order for anything associated with unclean people to be made clean, a death had to occur. There had to be blood that was spilled. We see this even more clearly laid out for us in verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This answers our question from earlier. Why did Moses sprinkle the book and the people with blood? Why were the tent and the vessels used in worship sprinkled with blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. John Calvin does an excellent job of explaining this in his commentary as he draws out this point of just how vivid a picture this would be for us so that our salvation is not through the book of the law. The blood has to be sprinkled Our salvation is not through the tabernacle or the temple. The blood has to be spilled. Our salvation is not through simply our worship. Blood had to be spilled. a life had to be taken. Without the blood of Christ, the law has no power to save us, only to condemn us. Likewise, without the blood of Christ... Our worship and our religious practices are powerless to redeem us from our sins. Are we ever guilty of relying too heavily on the good things God has given us, like the Bible and the church, in exclusion of the best thing that He has given us, namely Jesus Christ? Are we capable of going through the Christian motions, looking really good on the outside while actually rejecting Christ? That's why this sprinkling of the blood is so emphasized. It is by the blood of Christ alone that our sins can be forgiven. The only way for us to be redeemed and reconciled to God is through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Without the death of Christ, there is no way for sinners to be redeemed to a perfectly holy and just God. Because of God's justice, Jesus' death is the only way for us to be redeemed. I was thinking of a, a story to help illustrate and drive this home, and there's not very many stories that hit very close to this. So I wanted to use a story that's familiar to us. It's actually a parable that Jesus told. The story of the parable will be familiar to us. We don't have to spend a bunch of time going over that. But I just want us to think about the contrast of this. So it's a parable told in Matthew 18. And Jesus tells it in the context of forgiveness. There's a king and a servant comes to him who owes him a tremendous amount of money. The servant can't pay, so the king says, okay, I'm going to throw you and your wife and your children and all of you in jail until the debt is fully paid off. The servant comes and begs pity, and the king forgives him. The servant then goes and turns around and doesn't forgive someone who owes him much less. That's, in Jesus' context, the point of the parable. And that story is so offensive to us because we see the injustice in it. We see the injustice of somebody being forgiven and not forgiving. So in that story, when we look at it, we see that the wicked servant is the one who is unjust. But if we look at that story again and look at the king and what he does, he forgives the debt without any payment of the debt. God in his holiness and justice could not do that for us, not without violating his character. He is perfect. He laid down his perfect law, and we broke that law. It'd be nice for us to think he can just forgive us without having to do anything, but a penalty had to be paid for our sins. And that's what it's showing us here in these verses Death was necessary. The spilling of blood was necessary for us to be redeemed and reconciled to God. I pray that our study today of God's Word has helped increase your understanding of how our eternal redemption is only secured through the blood of Christ. I have a feeling that many of you have already known and understood these truths and can give a hearty amen when we dwell on them. But how are we giving an amen to what we have before us here today? Do we simply understand the facts with our heads? Are we just giving an amen with our minds? Or uh, even more than that, are we fighting against our best Baptist reservations and occasionally under our breath giving an amen with our voice? Or even better than just understanding the facts, do you believe them to be true and give a hearty amen with your heart? But what I really want us to consider as we conclude here today is how can we give an amen to these truths with our lives? Remember that we've been called from dead works to serve the living God. So how do we take these things we know about the blood of Christ redeeming us and transfer it into our lives? How does believing that you have a secured eternal redemption play out on a busy Monday morning? How do you respond to the truth that you have been purified from dead works to serve the living God? How does that show in your life on Thursday evening? How is it evident in your life on Saturday night that you believe that there is no forgiveness for you apart from the spilled blood of Christ? I think there are many ways for us to live these things out, but I want to point out five for us that I think the Holy Spirit can help us to not just know and believe what we have read here today, but to live it out throughout all of our days. First, knowing that we are redeemed by the blood of Christ, ought to drive us to thanksgiving and worship. I'm afraid that in our circles, sometimes we become so desensitized to hearing what Christ did for us that we're not in awe of what he did for us. When was the last time that you slowed down enough to sit and meditate on the work of Christ for you on the cross long enough that it led you, that it drove you to praise. We know these things and we agree about them, but do we believe them enough to fall down in thanksgiving and worship before our God? Second, knowing that our redemption and inheritance is secured by the death of Christ should give us great confidence and assurance Daily we must remind ourselves that we are not redeemed by anything that we can do or say or think, but only by the sacrifice of Christ's blood. Our confidence and assurance are secure only if they are found in Christ and not in ourselves. Third, seeing the great cost of our sin namely the blood of the innocent and perfect Son of God, should lead us to be remorseful for our sin and quick to confess it before our patient and loving Father. Whenever I think of the great cost of my sin, I often come back to a line uh, from the great old hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. And talking about the cross, this is what I believe it's the third verse says. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, tis the word, the Lord's anointed. Son of man and son of God. Look to the blood of Christ shed for you on the cross and never become comfortable or complacent with any sin that lingers in your life. Fourth, recognize that apart from Christ, you are helpless to save yourself. There is no Forgiveness of sin without the shedding of Christ's blood. We're going to hit this again when we get to chapter 10. We must be utterly reliant on Christ for everything. I'm again reminded of a song. One of the lines in It Is Well With My Soul says this, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control, that Christ has regarded My helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. What a thing to think of. Christ has regarded my helpless estate. But do we regard our helpless estate? Christ knows we're helpless. But do we know we're helpless or do we try to rely on on ourselves. It's such a huge temptation for us in our pride to rely on our own strength, our own intellect, our own finances. But in regard to salvation, we must view ourselves as helpless. We must regard our helpless estate. We must be utterly reliant on Christ. Fifth and finally. If we know and understand and believe that there is no forgiveness apart from Christ's blood, we must be driven to evangelize. If you are in Christ, you intimately know the only Savior who can redeem people from their sin. Are you earnestly seeking at every opportunity to share this good news? That's how we say amen with our lives. We share it. Not only believe it, but we want it for others. If not, as often most of us fail in these areas, repent. Pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you and give you a heart for the lost and a passion for boldly proclaiming His Word to this dying world. Finally, if you're here today and you are still stuck and struggling under the slavery of sin and death, turn to Christ alone for your redemption and your forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We praise you for the work that you did on our behalf through Christ. We acknowledge that apart from you, we are helpless. Worse than helpless, we are slaves to sin. Worse than slaves to sin, we have chosen to be slaves to sin, and we were actively your enemies. And even in that state, you sent your son, your only beloved son, to this earth to live the life that we could never live and to die the brutal death that we deserved, thus spilling his blood that redeems us from our slavery to sin and allows us to be adopted as your children. We praise you for your work through Christ. And we ask that you would help these truths to move from our heads to our hearts and to come out through our lives to those around us. All for the glory of your great name. It's in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.